Welcome to the World War I History Podcast, produced by the MacArthur Memorial, a museum and research center dedicated to preserving and presenting the history of General Douglas MacArthur, which includes the story of World War I and that of the millions of men and women who served in that war. On October 13, 2012, Dr. Lisa Boudreau spoke at the opening of the new MacArthur Memorial Visitor Center which also featured the opening of a brand new World War I exhibit at the memorial entitled Under the Rainbow, the 42nd Rainbow Division in the Great War. Dr. Boudreau is the author of Bodies of War, World War I and the Politics of Commemoration in America, 1919-1933. We hope you enjoy her presentation. It really is an honor to be here on this very special weekend and also to be back in Norfolk because it's been probably 10 years since I was last here. And I especially like standing out by the sea because for me, I just love the water. And uh, like Dorothy, it's a reminder that I'm not in Kansas anymore, so, uh, or Missouri for that matter. But uh, I'd like to invite everyone now to sit back because I'm going to tell you a story. Everybody likes a story. And this one begins as the First World War is coming to an end in November 1918. And we've just had the perfect lead up to set the stage. And now we're going to uh, look at what happens after the war. Before uh, we begin, though, I'd like to just digress briefly. Just a little bit as a memory historian, I just want to talk about the fact that many times in our work, if we're very fortunate, we end up doing work that when we were a child, we really uh, enjoyed. We had an interest for, it was a hobby. And for example, with me, I've always loved cemeteries. And uh, this particular one is in Machiasport, Maine, where I spent many hours as a child wandering along the cliffs of Machias Bay. And this 19th century graveyard is what really triggered my interest in my research. And one grave in particular, the inset here, Captain Paul Crocker, he died in January 1829 at the age of 67. And Crocker was in the Revolutionary War, but you wouldn't know it by the look on his headstone. There's a weeping willow tree, and I expect that he planned his epitaph before he died. Maybe his family went out at the last minute and got the, uh, the headstone. But this was my inspiration. I just want to read to you very quickly the epitaph that kind of spooked me as a kid. It says, quote, Stop, traveler, as you pass by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, soon you may be. Prepare to die and follow me. Nothing like a little cheery epitaph to brighten up your day there, right? But I kept a photo of him by my computer as inspiration. And particularly because of the 1829, the next 100 years is a major, major change in, in memory and commemoration. And uh, basically, here's the result. This is Bodies of War. It was my dissertation at Oxford, and it was revised over a course of a couple years. It took me 10 years total. And it tells the story of the struggle of humanity trying to cope and understand with death and the ambiguity that's involved there. The book is focused on three phases. Repatriation, what we're going to be talking about today, is the democratic choice regarding the disposition of remains. The second is re remembrance and the construction of commemorative symbols overseas, the cemeteries, the monuments. 
And uh, mostly those were by a select group of individuals, the American Battles Monuments Commission, and lastly, the return. And that's mostly the American, the American Legion in 1927. Thousands of guys went over there for their uh, Paris Convention. And also the Gold Star Mothers Pilgrimage, uh, which uh, from 1930 to 1933, the government paid for mothers and widows to make that journey. And now, the war to end all war, supposedly. And although the guns were silenced in November, the months following the signing of the armistice in 1919 brought an increased awareness of the death and destruction and the extent of the, that death caused by the First World War. The devastation was most apparent across the Western Front in Belgium and Northern France. And while politicians debated the reparations and the future League of Nations, armies buried their dead and they cost, counted the cost of victory or defeat, the painful process of reconstruction had begun. For the United States, the losses were substantially less than those of our allies. For example, by 1919, the British had 722,785 dead, compared to US figures that were well under 100,000, and most of those included flu victims. If you look here, these figures that I show here were taken from the Depa Department of Defense website in 2009. And again, keep in mind that these figures don't hardly compare at all with the 600,000 or more that were lost in the Civil War. Now, this is, this is the way pretty much that the front looked after uh, 1918 at the end of the war. The American Graves Registration Service, or known as the GRS, was largely responsible for the formidable work of identifying, exhuming, and registering all the burials that were left in more than 2,400 sites across Europe where American dead were buried. If you think about the fact that approximately 70,000 burials were in France alone and 15,000 were in isolated graves. This is an example of a, a trench burial. Isolated graves were those that were away from the roads, you know, single one here, one there. And it would cost the government $30 million just for the repatriation of the dead. That's not the reconstruction of the cemeteries and the monuments or the pilgrimages. That's just the uh, repatriation. But what began in 1918 would not be completely finished until the early 1930s. Within a few years after the last monument was dedicated in 1937, enemy artillery shells would be hitting those monuments. They would destroy the 3rd Division Monument of Chateau Thierry, the 28th Division Bridge at Fims, and the Navy Memorial at Brest, and they would actually damage the Montsec Memorial as well. Secretary of War Baker here and uh, uh, General of the AEF, uh, General John J. Pershing. Now, no nation was ready for the devastation of the First World War, but in the aftermath of slaughter, each remained accountable for its own dead. The U.S. was unprepared for a war of such magnitude and distance, despite the brevity of our time overseas and the benefits that might have been gained from previous wars. Now, due to the scarcity of shipping space and transports going across the Atlantic, General John J. Pershing decided that it would be, quote, impracticable to use valuable shipping space for coffins and funeral supplies and burial equipment. So all Americans who died overseas would remain interred there until after the cessation of hostilities. 
Basically, that was the extent of the government's pre-war planning, which is quite surprising. Now, in September 1918, just as Pershing is amassing about half a million inexperienced doughboys uh, at the Semiel front, salient, Secretary of War Newton Baker makes a pledge. This is September 1918, and he pledges to the nation that the government will ensure a home burial to all who died abroad. Now, his promise is made in lieu of any clear uh, policy concerning the deceased, and it's announced in newspapers so all the public know about it, but it's going to place the government in a very awkward position after peace is declared. Baker's a lawyer by profession. He's a pacifist, and he's former mayor of Cleveland, and Wilson appointed him in 1916 to be Secretary of War. Now, his promise sounded simple, but it's triggered a massive, highly controversial repatriation of the war dead from the battlefields to Europe to the U.S. between 1919 and 1922. And no nation had ever attempted such a task before. We were the first to ever try it. And we were the only nation to repatriate our dead after the war, except for the French, who were pretty much already there. Now, impatient pleas began arriving at the War Department within days of the ceasefire, with families and friends clamoring for the return of their war dead. Folks wanted information concerning their dead, their deceased, and they presumed that the War Department was going to be able to help them. They wanted uh, military commanders to answer their letters. And there were questions like, uh, did my son die in hospital? Give me the details of his burial. I want to see a photograph of the grave. And the consolidation process had only just begun. But the War Department's promise of 1918 was rooted in practices that by this time were of previous conflicts were already in the minds of the Americans. And uh, concerning the retrieval of the war dead, the Mexican War, the United States was the first to establish a cemetery overseas, er, sorry, in Mexico City. First federally subsidized cemetery was there. You had the American frontier, because as the West was settled, we started developing cemeteries across the, na the nation, and it was almost a claim on the land. We, we were across here, we died here, we buried here, therefore we, it's a conquest of that land and, and we're going to be buried here. So there are attitudes too that were changing about death across the United States and in the culture by that time. The dead were normally embalmed by 1918. You were already taking them to funeral parlors. You weren't handling and caring for the dead at home any longer. The most enduring, perhaps, image of uh, the Civil War uh, continued to serve as a touchstone for subsequent generations. It was really the Civil War and that national apocalypse that led to this dramatic shift in the American pattern of commemoration. Uh, when Lincoln dedicated Gettysburg in 1863, he evoked the soldier dead as an enduring symbol of an ultimate goal of the war. And efforts were made to maintain individual identity and death and to concentrate the dead and place the government as the person, as the entity in charge for the cemeteries. And they also started a national bureau to maintain records for missing soldiers. So it really became the touchstone for our culture. Now, although people of all races reverted to the Civil War commemorative model established by Lincoln, it was the African Americans who perceived Gettysburg uh, 
with particular significance because this was the birthplace of their freedom. But in the months preceding that famed public dedication in 1863, black laborers had been forced to exhume the remains of the war dead from their scattered burials, and they were taking them from crude, shallow uh, graves and um, consolidating them as well. Seems in direct opposition to the democratic spirit that was depicted in 1863, but there you go. Now, often the effort extended to bring the war dead home often risked the lives of the, de of the living and, and as well as risking the safety of the dead. And that was the case after the Spanish-American War. And President McKinley sent two expeditions out to Hawaii, to Guam, uh, to the islands, to the Philippines, to bring back the dead. It was right before the election of 1900. And presidential election, 1900, so it was uh, a useful uh, political tool for him. Now, these expeditions were led by David H. Rhodes. He was the superintendent of the U.S. Burial and Disinterment Corps, and he was contracted by the government to take a team over there and to search for the dead. And he detailed this uh, report and his experiences in a report, and it's amazing, the monsoons and carrying uh, coffins through jungles and dealing with uh, Filipino insurgents, cases of missing identification, incorrect burials, missing graves. And he shared all these details with the Army, but the details never got presented to the public. Now, this was his counterpart in the Army. This is Lieutenant Colonel Charles Pierce. When an Army morgue was established in Manila, Chaplain Charles Pierce was chosen as the officer in charge of the service. And he and Rhodes were required to work together. And according to reports, they didn't get along very well. There was a lot of animosity between the two men. And the rivalry actually threatened operations, and they were actually uh, discontinued. And in the future, the War Department policy forbade any similar civilian military division of authority in an active theater of command. That tells you how badly they got along. But despite their animosity, there were two basic tenets that were enacted from their mission together. And the first was an ID disc of aluminum that every uh, field kit needed to contain in the future. And the other one was a central agency for burial information. Chaplain Pierce was called to active duty from retirement as soon as the First World War started. Now, given the lack of policy, Consolidation of the dead began late 1918, but without any clear deadlines. And once again, more than 6,000 African Americans were detailed to the GRS to perform the gruesome work. And it involved opening thousands of graves and removing bodies from a distance, sometimes maybe a few yards, to three miles or more. It was a repugnant task, as you can imagine. And it was said that except in the chalky soil immediately north of the Somme, a few months after burial were sufficient to reduce the body to a skeleton. Post-war concentration of the dead itself was a process prone to confusion and chaos as sometimes bodies would be exhumed several times and reburied, relocated miles from the battlefield, and then finally years later they'd be laid to rest in a national cemetery. I read so many letters from families uh, for example, one FMA Jackson of West Philadelphia. She wrote, she had three sons. She wrote to the War Department and wanted to know where her sons, who were, were unknown, were going to have their name memorialized. She said, 
I am a mother of unknown. My son, Sergeant Winfield A. Jackson, was buried three times and then lost. And unfortunately, this was not unusual. There were three sites originally selected as principal points of concentration in France, uh, but they soon became in, uh, insufficient. 20 men would form a skirmish line at intervals of 50 meters, and in this fashion, these troops would cover an average of about 64 square kilometers per day. The black laborers found and reburied 23,000 bodies in the Meuse-Argonne alone. In France, blacks were buried side by side with the white American dead, but at home, at Arlington, they were buried in separate colored sections. What are we gonna do with those dead over there? I'd say this um, because Americans were confident with their dead that their dead would be returned, but they were unprepared for the heartache of missing men, for the massive unidentified dead, and the eventual complications that would be wrought by a policy that advocated leaving bodies in or near distant battlefields. Americans were also confident that the French would assure the transportation and the return of the soldier dead, but the situation changed dramatically in February 1919 when the French Ministry of the Interior forbid all exhumations and all transport of all bodies for three years. French were understandably anxious to consolidate the isolated graves, they also lacked transportation, and they were concerned about hygiene dan dangers. But the interesting thing is that the French decision actually gave the War Department some time, much needed time, to form a strategy. But it also risked misidentifications and administrative chaos and, and continued public outcry for the dead. Now, Charles Pierce was involved in many, many negotiations throughout 1919, and he tried to explain the French position to the War Department. And this is what he said. He said, should an exception be made in the case of the Americans dead, it would at once involve each of the other nations in clamorous agitation for like action to satisfy its own people, end of quote. The facts of these negotiations were made public in February 1919 when Pierce was called to testify before the House Expenditures Committee. He faced some harsh interrogation, I can tell you, from Indiana Republican Oscar E. Bland when he asked, Colonel Pierce, what is to become of those dead over there? And after days of questioning, Pierce admitted. He said, there was no plan. The War Department as of yet had no idea what they were gonna do with the dead over there. Now, the War Department put relentless pressure onto the French to lift their restrictions, but you know, the French had cause to delay American repatriation efforts. I mean, after all, the war had devastated the rich northern regions of the country where the coal and iron fields were. Uh, 1,400 miles of railroad had been demolished along with the roads, along miles of canals. And the refugees, refugees were attempting to come home and, of course, they were indebted to the United States between three and four billion dollars. Now, ultimately, after all the negotiations, months and months of negotiations, they would offer U.S. land for national cemeteries. They also agreed to allow the United States to transport only those bodies whose return was demanded by the next of kin, excluding the unknown, and they allowed them to begin work in September 1920. Transportation problems were solved when the United States agreed to pay France for rental charges to use the railroads. 
And lastly, the French decreed that the transfer of their own French dead to their homes would also begin at the same time. Now, France wasn't the only nation that was affected by American intentions. In Brussels, I found a report that, quote, says, the insistent demands of the United States government for the removal of soldiers' remains buried there were said to be causing considerable embarrassment to the Belgian government. So really nobody knew what they were going to do with their own situation. Now, the British, an equally difficult strain was placed on policymakers in London. The American decision made British government responsible, responsibility much more difficult to its own people. The British did not repatriate their dead. All their soldiers were buried near the battlefield, um, and they were, uh, plans were made for those military cemeteries even during the war in 1917. One British uh, Imperial War Graves commissioner wrote, quote, I don't know what, if any negotiations went on between Paris and Washington before this decision was taken, but we have actually received letters referring to it from relatives who desire the similar concession, and I don't know what to tell them. End of quote. Now, by March 1919, the War Department was growing increasingly ambivalent about the keeping its pledge, and so in typical democratic fashion, it sent a letter accompanied by a ballot to all the next of kin to ascertain their wishes regarding the permanent disposition of bodies. They sent over 74,000 ballot cards, and by January 1920, they had about 63,700 ballots came back. But it was interesting because of the confusion was, would be inevitable because they had different addresses, and people were mailing them back to Paris, to Washington, various offices. Nobody knew where, quite where to send them back. Plus, you had disgruntled family members who had complicated the process. You had a mother who wanted the body in one place. You had a widow who wanted the body somewhere else. And so in order to really this time obtain the most up-to-minute wishes, Colonel Pierce sent out, yes, you guessed it, another what he called a shipping inquiry to the next of kin to ask their final, disp their final decision. And in some cases, family had already written back to him and told him their final decision. For example, one man wrote, we have received already two of these forms and have filled them out and sent them back. We've already told you we don't want the body of Walter Kowalski to be sent here, and we wish not to be molested with any more telegrams or any forms as to the shipment of the above, end of quote. And it also gave false hopes to families whose uh, sons or husbands were... Uh, unknown, missing. It gave them hope that they were going to be brought back. And lastly, as democratic choice continued, so did the digging. Now, they had a lot of critics over there observing the work of the GRS, and the efforts to appease Americans occupied a lot of time for the Graves Registration Service. They were struggling to uh, work under the watchful eye of the media. One guy in particular, Owen Wister, he was the author of The Virginian, he visited France many times, and he reported to the New York Times on the disturbing uh, mistake of uh, moving American soldiers from their graves. And he described this as poor fragments of humanity being taken up and dragged from the soil of their sacrifice. He wrote in defense of the overseas cemeteries, and he conducted a relentless attack against the process of repatriation. And which didn't help matters at all for the government, Wister claimed that it was, quote, extremely improbable 
that the families receiving bodies of soldiers actually got the remains of their own sons. He was also a friend of Teddy Roosevelt's, who was in favor of overseas cemeteries. Now this I just put in here to remind everybody what was going on during this time. Uh, Ku Klux Klan was back again, the Americans after the war, um, the uh, Republican Calvin Coolidge was in the White House, and um, upon Harding's death in 1923, Coolidge had become president. Uh, it was a period of ebullient optimism, robust living. You had the Scopes trial in 1925, Gertrude Edderly swam the English Channel, Babe Ruth his 60th home run during this period. Now, contrary to political intentions, the freedom of choice did not create unity in the United States, and it rather deepened the divisiveness that was already present. The field of honor association was a powerful vehicle against repatriation of policymakers in Washington. It, was mounted, it mounted a fierce public campaign to convince the public that as the men fought and died in France, that's where they should be kept, that's where they should remain. Members of this group included Pershing, Cornelius Vanderbilt, Samuel Gompers, and Teddy Roosevelt, Jr. The American Central Field of Honor, which was overseas, is where Americans should be. You said one cemetery, that was what they believed, and that's where people could go to uh, honor their dead. Now, these guys were countered by the, quote, Bring Home the Soldier Dead League, and they promised a tomb in America for every U.S. hero. And it was based pretty much on what was good for the individual rather than what was good for the community or for the country. They believed that Americans were too far away from the battlefields, that nobody was going to go over there, and that Americans really wanted to mourn privately and at home. Now, J.D. Foster was the chairman of the Bring Home the Soldier Dead League, and if you'll notice here, he uh, also had another business. He wrote constantly to Secretary Baker to deal more aggressively with the French. And not only was he chairman of the organization, he was also the owner of Foster's and Son, who was sellers of disinfectants and fumigators. So you know where he's coming from. He and his wife were intending to visit France in April 1920. And prior to sailing over there, he made a little arrangement with Colonel Pierce to provide letters of introduction for him. And so that when he got to France, he would already have an in with the grace registration folks over there, ingratiating his favor. In return, Pierce received Foster's reassurance that he would petition some of his friends in Congress to support pending legislation in favor of Pierce's keeping his rank, newly appointed rank of colonel, upon retirement. This is Flaville in the Meuse-Argonne. Uh, Field Marshal Douglas Haig, who was the commander of the British forces, wrote, I quote, shell craters full of water, mud, and tangled belts of barbed wire render it difficult to find graves which we know exist. The ground has to be carefully searched to discover others which have not been registered. End of quote. During the fighting, orders strictly prohibited burials in remote, inaccessible places or sites of unsuitable drainage. But unfortunately, due to the circumstances of war, any lo location might be used. Now, the lack of coordination between the United States Army's GRS service and the Navy and Marines contributed significantly to the misinformation that families frequently received. And this, too, was exploited by the press. In England and Scotland, the U.S. Navy and the Marines, they disinterred their own dead entirely independent of the Army. But in France, the GRS exhumed the deceased members of Navy and Marines, and they charged the other services the other branches for that work. 
Now, communication broke down in Washington when the Marine Corps began handling its own dead without waiting for the GRS. So the Navy began concentrating its dead at Brest, France, believing it was more cost-effective that way to take one cemetery at a time back. Well, the result was that when the GRS sent inquiries back to the United States to the relatives, they would ask their decision regarding their disposition of their dead, and lo and behold, they already had their dead back there. They already were, were with the families. So that didn't make the GRS look too good. Um, newspapers were quick to highlight this. And in the summer of 1921, they ran a really scaling story about the GRS when a New Jersey father returned home unexpectedly and found the coffin of his son on his front porch. The neighbors reported that four soldiers just backed up the truck to the curb and they just carried the coffin to the porch and, and then they were off. So things like that were not unusual. Now we begin the journey home. As you can imagine, the transportation of bodies from France, from overseas to the United States was a logistical nightmare. They needed lots and lots of trucks and canal boats and railway cars. Coffins had to be procured and more labor was constantly required. And Americans kept changing their minds. 13,000 people changed their mind by mid-1921. Some in favor of keeping them overseas, others for bringing them back. They would be in the midst of exhuming a body and they would receive a telegram or they'd be placing the body aboard the ship for its journey back to the United States and all of a sudden they get this telegram, say, take it off. So, yeah, they had a lot to deal with. Now this was the outcome. Six cemeteries in France, one in Brookwood Cemetery in England, and one in Wareham, Belgium. Now this, this map shows the multi-ethnic fighting force that contributed enormously to the military during the war, but unfortunately it complicated an already difficult task for the Graves Registration Service afterwards because many of the next of kin who were living in foreign countries requested their loved ones to be brought back home for native burial in their homeland. So in January 1920, believe it or not, the War Department decided to deliver upon request the bodies of American servicemen buried overseas to their homes. And this required, as you can imagine, some elaborate negotiations with uh, foreign governments. The Italian government proved the most complex of all because there were more Italians that were requesting uh, foreign burial than any other nation, and that was followed by the Irish. The extent of government efforts to do this, I think, is really uh, goes beyond precedence. And there are stories about carrying bodies through Italy, and when they uh, reached the last outpost where the last railroad line went, they would carry the coffin, um, sometimes 90 kilometers or so. Was, one was taken to a small island uh, around Naples. It's pretty amazing. But the uh, JRS claims that 454 bodies were taken overseas for farm burial by 1922. Not everybody got their bodies back, though. So there would be no bodies left in Germany, Luxembourg, and of course, none left in Russia. By the mid-1920s, the Graves Registration Service had shipped 45,588 bodies to the United States at a cost of $30 million, or that's about $658 per body, far in excess of the 1920 estimate. They thought it was going to cost them $160 per body. If the body was left overseas, the cost was reduced by 50%. 764 were ultimately shipped in various places throughout Europe. 
All the unknown remains were left overseas, except, of course, as we know, the one that was chosen for the tomb at Arlington. Colonel Charles Pierce would die of pneumonia in Tour France in May 1921, and he died without seeing the last American dead returned home. His body was taken to Arlington for burial, and he requested that no funeral establishment be involved with his burial at all. So I think he'd seen enough. Now, ideally, I'll just leave this with you in summary, that commemoration is really meant to unify communities and nations. It's meant to validate human sacrifice and to stir collective memory. But unfortunately, the reality of national remembrance sometimes is often something quite different. Because of democratic choice, 60% of our dead were shipped back to the United States. And once they were shipped back, the American Battles Monuments Commission did not keep records. Those who had chosen for, to be buried in a national cemetery or Arlington, the re records were maintained. And you can imagine in America's transient culture, when people move on, there's no record. You know, it's no wonder that you, uh, First World War is often referred to as the Forgotten War because you know, so many families don't have a clue where they're deceased or buried now, unfortunately. And so I conclude my talk with that. And also this legacy, as um, my colleague uh, uh, Jim mentioned, I was in uh, JPAC in Hawaii for almost two years working on the return of the POWs and MIAs from World War II and World War I. And I think that is also a legacy that we want to remember came from this period of repatriation from the First World War. So thank you all. Thank you for listening. If you have any questions, suggestions, or comments, please contact Amanda Williams at amanda.williams at norfolk.gov.